I'm Mike Seymour and welcome to this week's VFX show where we're going to deepest, darkest Africa to Black Panther, a film both significant in its enormous box office impact, its cultural uh, statement about what it means to have a successful film with black actors by a black director uh, about a story that has uh, got only one Tolkien white in it. Um, but before we go any further on that, I'm going to introduce our uh, co-hosts for the show, uh, starting with Jason Diamond. How are you, Jason? Uh, very good. You are holding up well, going into final Oscar week? Yeah, it was 70 degrees in New York yesterday, and then it was uh, 45 today, so I'm all uh, immunized. <laughs> and joining us, uh, Matt Wallen. How are you, Matt? Uh, I'm A-OK, ready to uh, rock and roll, as they say. And as we've had a weather report from New York City, what's it like where you are? It's pretty much the same. It's been like, okay. you know, a wild roller coaster ride of... Uh, up and down uh, <laughs> here on the uh, east coast of the uh, United States. Yeah, it's been it's been pretty pretty nutty. Well, uh, I'm obviously coming to you from Sydney to complete our international picture. And uh, obviously, as I said, we're talking about Black Panther. Um, it just can't be underestimated how much people used to say that a black film with a black cast telling a story that's uh, you know primarily. Um, told by a black director and not having any particular kind of uh, heroic um, sort of gestures towards uh, some kind of uh, white thing just wasn't going to play at the box office. This just wasn't going to be possible. Um, I guess the question to you, Matt, is is this film significantly changed that perception or is it just all of that ignores the fact that this is a Marvel action superhero film and it didn't matter what race or colour or creed was in it, it would have worked? Yeah, I, I would say it's a it's a little bit of both. I think it's both. Um, you know, the Marvel factor is certainly uh, you know a part of the story, but I think more than anything, I mean, this really does break new ground uh, in terms of the the construct um, and the execution of the movie being largely uh, you know an all black. Uh, cast with, uh, I guess, one or two exceptions, um, and then being directed by uh, uh, an African-American filmmaker. Uh, I felt like watching it in the theater, too. I, I really felt like I was seeing and experiencing something that was, like, fresh. It felt uh, new. It felt, um, for lack of a better term, it felt really liberated as a as a thing, as a... Um, Story as a, a context. Can I just get a ruling from you on on language? I'm an Australian, so we don't mm -hmm. have uh, the concept of using like the term African American. I use the term black, but in absolutely sure. in no way a derogatory way. It's just that that is what an Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander might um, identify with as a as a comparative and completely equal term to. Um, in Australia, is that uh, am I am I being uh, inadvertently offensive by saying that, or is it? Sorry, I just don't want to clarify. No, I, I mean, <laughs> you know, at least from my perspective, my understanding, I don't think uh, so at all. I think, um, you know, uh, it, it you could say it's a uh, a movie that you know stars all black actors uh, for the most part um, and is directed by. Uh, you know, a black man. I don't think there's anything about that that's offensive. I think that's just kind of stating it as it stands. But I think we I mean, tend to say and utilize um, the term, at least in the United States, and referring to 
an African-American, which not all these actors are African-American. I think some of them are from other Well, that nations, was the point I was going to make, actually, because some of the actors are like from Uganda or something, right? So it's not... Right. Um, it's yeah. not as if it's a... Uh, anyway, if I could speak to the audience and just say, if in any way, shape or form, my language is inappropriate, I apologize. It's probably just a cultural thing from my country. Not that we have a particularly good record on race relations, and I'm not pretending for a second that we do, but I just want to clarify that because I... I think at some point in this conversation, we're going to get into the sort of politics of this film to a certain extent. And I'd like to be state right up front that I like uh, will try and be appropriate to the sensibilities of whatever it is. But I, I don't know. I'm going to accidentally put my foot in it. I guess just in the, I mean, I think, yeah, that's fair to say. I mean, yeah, here we have an all white uh, show of hosts uh, on this episode of the VFX show, but um but, you know, I think it's one of those things where going to see the movie, I went with my son and two of his buddies from middle school, um, and they were just excited to go see Black Panther. I think for them it was like kind of, you know, it, almost irrelevant in their minds, like, you know, what the uh, makeup was of the uh, the cast or the filmmakers. They thought it was an awesome movie. They loved the characters. They loved the story. Um you know, and I, I think that's kind of exciting. Like, so for kids, like, you know, it seemed like, uh, at least no big deal for, for my kid and his friends, but there were so many other young kids. I live in Richmond, Virginia, which is, um, you know, it's history is pretty, uh, sketch in the sense that it's the capital of the old Confederate States of America from the civil war in the United States. And there's a large, um, uh, black population uh, here in the city. And so there were so many uh, people in the theater who, um, you know, were there because this was Black Panther and this was an opportunity for them and their kids to come and see a movie that I think was something that, um, where these these little kids in the theater, they're looking up at the screen and they're having probably a largely um, unique experience for a lot of them in that they're seeing a movie where everyone in the movie looks like them. And this is a story that is about, uh, you know, a hero and a group of heroes that reflect, you know, their daily, you know, experience. They reflect their reality. And I think that was really exciting. There was a little kid two seats over from me there with his parents. And um, he was wearing like a uh, the, for the entire movie, he had his Black Panther mask on, which was kind of rad. But <laughs> I mean, it's, but you know, it's funny, it's, it's not that different though than what you'd see, like, you know, going to see, you know, the Avengers movie or Iron Man, like where just as many kids are wearing like those masks and stuff too. Like, but I think it's really exciting for Marvel um, and uh, the filmmakers here to really embrace this character and embrace the story and tell the story, you know, uh, and create a, a cast and crew um, that was so totally kind of different than and game changing, really. I think from at least the kinds of stuff that Hollywood has produced at this scale with this kind of budget um, in the past. Jason, so I think that's yeah, great. Jason. Jason, it's been put to somebody said this, and, and I'll quote it that that this is to Marvel what Wonder Woman was to DC, and that obviously that was a changer in terms of having a lead female superhero. Do you think that stuff is important or do you think people just turned up because it's another great Marvel film? No, I mean, I think, I think there's no way to discount the box office um, that it had and the, and the excitement that it had in record-breaking ticket pre-sales and, and everything by not uh, 
clearly tying that to an underserved population of moviegoers. Right. You know, I mean, I, I, I think you'd be doing a disservice both to them and to the marketplace in general. And some would say that that was Disney's gambit, both um, on a sociologically beneficial level that they wanted to do it both to benefit the uh, societal makeup of movies and what have you and push that forward. And because they knew they had an underserved uh, population that would be eager to see a movie uh, they could relate to. Uh, I'm speculating obviously, and and it sounds harsh to say that, but there are business uh, I'm sure these people make decisions more from business than emotional. Um, But I well, we've agree certainly seen that, that the other way, haven't we? We've seen we've seen films be trashed because they whitewashed a story. Yeah, and yeah, well, Ghost in the Shell and and yeah. other movies where 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 characters of of a certain nationality aren't played by characters of that nationality. And, I mean, you it know, felt like this was a a terrifically joyous celebration of things both African American and African, right? Like, I mean, yeah. as in an American cultural thing being the superhero comic book thing, which is quite bizarrely, you know, like uh, the most important thing in in films right now. And at the other end of the spectrum, like everything from costumes to, um, I mean, they were pulling no punches on on language, on uh, dress, on even uh, building design to try and link it to be, you know, African. And and marvellously so. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that um, you can, I mean, we can just say spoilers right now because we need to get into details on the movie. So if you haven't seen the movie, uh, you should go see it uh, at least once, if not multiple times, uh, and then come back and listen. But I, I think the thing I think that is, that is the most successful about the movie, and I, there's a huge article on The Atlantic that that I read afterwards that mirrored my sent- sentiments exactly, at least from my point of view. Not, I, I can't have an uh, African American uh, or black point of view, um, but in the first act, I leaned over to my friend, and I went with uh, my brother and myself and my niece and her friend and another um, adult, you know, female friend, and. And we all loved it. And actually, my friend had seen it, already seen it, and was excited to see it again. Um, and I turned to her in the first act, and I said, "You know, what's really interesting about this so far is Wakanda has all these, uh, you know, technological and sociological advancements, yet they don't share them with anyone, and they're isolationist. That's kind of weird." And literally that question that, that I was, that they posed to me that I uh, got in that first act is the actual message of the movie. And when I realized that by the end, by the, you know, once Killmonger comes in and, and you start learning about his origins and all that stuff and the end result of the movie is why are we isolationist and the, the villain, quote unquote, the main villain's d- goal is to turn the country from an isolationist to a globalist uh, thing. Now, he wants to take it too far and become a, 
an you know like an uh, imperialist again in its own in its own way. But so obviously that's why he can be the villain while still having a, a seemingly altruistic you know value. But I th- you know I thought that to me was was why aren't why aren't uh, African and black people who have the ability to help other African and black people around the world why aren't they doing that? That's the question. It's answered. That's why I think it's successful, because that is the overarching message, not what superpower or gun or something does the villain have or want. He doesn't even want the stuff for his own personal gain. He wants it for the gain to rule the world with all of his brothers and sisters that he feels are in, in you know, oppression. Yeah, it made I for a nice that, villain, didn't it? That the villain yeah. wasn't from a point of view that you could in no way relate to. It wasn't just like the mad scientist that wants to blow up everything uh, yeah. and see it all burn. It's kind of like uh, it's kind of like Michael Keaton's character in Spider Man. Like that, he had a reason to do what he did. Mm. He wasn't just a scientist who figured out how to do something like uh, Harry Osborn or whatever and became the Green Goblin. Oh no, you know, like. And that's fine because, I, you know, that's a comic book character. But if we're going to start getting into these larger human dramas and build this Marvel Cinematic Universe, they can't all be happenstance villains, right? Or yeah, superheroes. And they, and they can't all be psychotic, uh, mentally deranged, uh, you know, jokers either, right? Where they're just... Right. Well, and, and you get Killmonger goes from being a, a disaffected, uh, orphaned, pseudo-orphaned, you know, black youth to becoming who's clearly intelligent uh, because they mentioned he goes to MIT and all this stuff and he rises through the ranks. You know, he's been given an opportunity to uh, of a way out of his situation. He takes it and he excels in um, what you would consider to be the, the um, um, traditional American military success story, right? And he goes around the world oppressing other people, Um you know, so it's it's it, the layers were really were really um, I thought were really uh, nicely done. Yeah, yeah. So so Matt, there's every every story I guess has a challenge. Normally, the challenge is why the hell don't you just call the Avengers, which is the one that you know like most uh, people are faced with. You know, like. We could just solve this problem if we just got the big green guy in. You know, do you need to continue solving this problem in isolation? Um, And then the other problem you've got is having something that seems important enough to fight for and doesn't involve just trashing New York again. And I guess on all those sort of normal fronts, leaving aside the the importance of the uh, cultural message, like the story works there too, doesn't it? I mean, it just is a genuinely good kind of story as, uh, as Jason's been saying. Yeah, I mean, I think it does largely center around sort of uh, the domestic politics of Wakanda. Uh, but at the same time, too, yeah, there is this um, kind of larger narrative, like uh, the potential um, impact if, uh, you know, Killmonger, Michael B. Jordan's character, who, uh, by the way, just in keeping with what you guys were saying, I thought that um, Michael B. Jordan as a villain uh, or uh, sort of the the heavy, the baddie in the movie. I thought he was great in the sense that he um, he fulfills the thing that we've often criticized about a lot of these Marvel movies, um, having these kind of really cardboard cutout bad guys that you're not that interested in. He really was an incredibly, which is what you're saying, I guess, but he's such a compelling character. He had so much going on and so many reasons 
to believe and have the perspective and point of view that he had. And he fulfilled, uh, you know, um, kind of the, the, the hole that we've seen in so many, he, he's such a better written villain, um, and makes the, the hero in a way, yeah, a much better hero too in the long run. But yeah, I mean, I think, you know, overall, you know, the whole thing about, um, what you guys were talking about, about the technology and all that kind of stuff, it kind of gets into that whole concept of Afrofuturism, right. As a, kind of uh, something that you could look at with regards to, um, you know, sort of the look at, um, you know, the philosophy of science and history and all that stuff that, you know, exploring things related from an African or African-American culture um, and its combination with technology. I feel like that's a big part of the story, a big part of the world that's been created. Um, and I think uh, what uh, uh, what happens in the film and the overall uh, story as it's written. Um, I think Ryan Coogler, the director and, uh, one of the writers on the story, I mean, they've just totally knocked it out of the park and made something that I think functions, um, on a number of those levels. It's working both as kind of the story of the hero, but also within the larger context of, um, creating and telling the story of, uh, Wakanda and of T'Challa and, uh, all his, uh, people from Wakanda as bringing them into kind of the larger Marvel universe. Well, and it's an origin story, which normally are <clears throat> kind of boring yeah. in a lot of ways. Like you exactly. have to be like, okay, this will be the origin story. And then the next one will be good. Yeah. But in this case, they, they mixed it all together and they also um, had, even as much as they had really well-written established male characters like my friend i think pointed out accurately that you know killmonger is the malcolm x to t'challa's martin luther king yeah, that's cool right yeah sure and and then but then above that you have uh incredibly strong if not the strongest characters being black women which i think you know which is a really smart play because it not only ties into the Wonder Woman sort of, you know, vibes that people were feeling about the warrior, you know, race of uh, in in uh, Wonder Woman, but also that that they were they were the protection force. You know what I mean? The the little sister was the Q character right, right. or M or whatever. You know what I mean? Yeah, like, I had have to so say- much James Bond DNA in the way that the story yeah. was constructed. But yeah, that woman, uh, I, I don't know how you pronounce her name, Denai or Danny Guerrera, the, who played the general, she, the, what, yeah. the lead warrior. Yeah, uh, she deserves warrior. She, Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, That's sure. exactly what I said when I left the theater. I said, you know, I want to see wow. a movie just about her character. She was so charismatic on screen and just so interesting. And the struggle her character goes through too as the power dynamics are shifting yeah. within Wakanda and how she, it's almost, you know, an analogy, at least for us here in the United States to uh, our current um, kooky political. But yeah, it's true though, right? Like it's, you know, they say in the military, you salute the uniform, not the man. Yeah, totally, and, totally. Um, and I can totally see that. I think that was all really valid. I, I will say before we get it too lost in sort of mm. love letters to this film, there was some plot, you know, ghastlies like the for me the the younger sister being smarter than tony stark and also able to fight really well and also be you know incredibly good looking and just all round funny you know i mean it, she just was like a little i don't know that was just mm-hmm, really <laughs> okay 
But like if that's the marvelization part you have to accept to get the movie you get, you know, I, you know, also remember she grew up with that technology. So she would inherently, they've had that technology for thousands of years or whatever, at least in terms of the ability to move, do the things they were doing and whatever. So I'm not to, not to explain it away, but I get your point, but I just, I was like, okay, cool. She's the, she's this resident super genius. Okay, and the other plot point I had was basically when you have the first fight at the waterfall, it's literally like, hey, audience, we're going to show you how this is going to run because it's going to become significant later in the film and you kind of need this as like exposition. So we'll just do this one for you and then we'll play it all again, only the second time you'll see how it goes south. And I was (laughs) was like, okay. I had some real problems with the waterfall sequence, by the way. Um, Or the, yeah, the waterfall fight sequence. But... um. But notwithstanding that, yeah. So I mean, there were some like I, I thought personally there were some clunkers, um, and uh, you know, there's there's a lot of problems I have with the um, I can put on a suit and withstand being you know slammed into a wall at um, having fallen down a giant hole into a. I mean, you know, like I know it's all alien tech kind of dot dot dot, but nevertheless, like you know, if I fall over, I'd like injure myself you know, just stumbling on a stair. <laughs> These guys fall into their thing down onto a monorail track and no one seems to sort of even break a rib or, or sprain an ankle. Um, but anyway, that's superhero stuff for you. Um, the thing is though that uh, all of that, notwithstanding, like that's a bit clunky in places, I do think that they solve the big fundamentals like really, really well and I applaud everything about it. But can I switch gears because we're plowing through the time here to the VFX itself. Because um, there were some spectacularly good sequences in the film. At least that's my opinion. I guess I should start with you guys. What did you think of the visual effects uh, overall? I mean, I think, you know, there are some really great visual effects. There's some really great and fun sequences. Um, uh, some of the, the, really, some of the smaller visual effects were things that really stood out to me. I love the... Um, uh, just for a, one example, I love the uh, sand-based uh, oh, wasn't holographic great? communication uh, yeah. system they yeah. developed. I thought that was really neat. But I, I actually do think there were um, actually some big set-piece uh, visual effects that I thought just weren't that great. Uh, and there were some issues with some digital doubles that I had some problems with. Um, mm-hmm. uh, and so it was it didn't take me out of the film really. Like I still was really having a good time. I was, I was very uh, into the story and enjoying that aspect of it. But as a, you know, for the visual effects show, as a visual effects um, aficionado, (laughs) um, there were certainly a few things that I felt like, I don't know if it was totally just from a design standpoint or uh, the way in which some of the action uh, set pieces were laid out, but there were a few um, pretty clunky sequences, I thought um, visually, um, so it was, it was, you know, not something that was totally detrimental to the film in any way, uh, not at all, in fact, but, um, some things that I really did feel like missed the mark a little bit in terms of, um, their success for me overall. So the companies involved, uh, Method, uh, was a lead contributor and, uh, had like, like 400 artists on it and they did a whole lot of stuff. In throughout the film, in particular, they did the big fight sequence at the end, the uh, third act kind of um, stuff that we uh, came to know and love. Um, so Method contributed a ton of shots. ILM contributed a ton of shots because they did 
the city basically. Well, they did the the whole country really, and so it's the city and the surrounding um, areas. Because as you'll know, they go out to sort of regional areas. They go to markets. They do all of that. So all of that stuff and. I guess you'd call it environment work, was all done by um, uh, ILM and they did probably, the, I think they were second on the credit list. Uh, Luma and Scanline also did a whole bunch. Um, Scanline uh, being obviously particularly good at water, did the waterfall sequence and the um, the stuff that happened with the uh, the fight, at least, you know, part of that. And then none of these are, by the way, necessarily black and white in that, you know, like for example, the rhino, was done, I think, by method for the end fight, but ILM for when they met it earlier and gave it the apple. Uh, and then Luma, I think, t- handled the bulk of what was going on in uh, Korea when they do the chase uh, in Korea and they do the whole um, very cool, again, 007-type uh, nightclub. Um, uh, mm-hmm. Is it a casino? Is it a casino? I think it is a casino, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah I think so, yeah. yeah, that they uh, go into. Um, but there was actually quite a few companies. And I've, for the life of them, I can't remember the company that did the title sequence with the sand effect. But mm-hmm. um, what, did Lola, <clears throat> what did Lola do? I saw them in the credits. I'm not 100% what sure Lola did, but obviously Lola tends to do uh, work on people and quite often that's uh, to do with... Yeah. Uh, so I don't know. I literally don't know. But I mean, you know, if you told me that they made somebody look like they had a better six-pack, I'd believe you because they're, uh, they're very good at that kind of stuff. Uh, but also they can do uh, makeup. So if somebody's being beaten up or stuff. Also, right. uh, you know, obviously at some point um, Andy Circus loses his arm. Um, nobody right. got my joke about the, uh, the Tolkien white guy being uh, Martin There's Freeman. There's two Tolkien white guys. Well, that's true. Oh, Tol- the other one being Tolkien Andy white guy, I get it. Yeah. Martin Freeman. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But uh, I was referring to Martin Freeman. Actually, I thought um, Andy Serkis was really good. Um, yeah. And, and it was nice to see Andy kind of being, he like commits to a role, like, you know what I mean? Like he's really... <laughs> well, it's acting he can take full credit for. Yeah, totally. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so anyway, uh, the, um, yeah, so it's a range of, as with all of these uh, Marvel things, it tends to be a ton of people uh, that are doing stuff. But, you know, I mean, there are sequences like the Luma car sequence in Korea that were, <clears throat> let's face it, a bit of a Lexus um, product placement that yeah. <laughs> seemed to run really well as a standalone unit. And I'm going to have to say, like, in a very James Bond sense, like if you'd, um, you know, you could cut that whole sequence out of your memory and not actually kind of lose any of your love of Black Panther and then just... Because, you know, like in one sense, it's so removed from Africa, it's so removed from anything, but it makes a nice break in the film and, and works well as a kind of a, uh, yeah. you know, a fun action sequence. Well, the, casino, the casino sequence was good too, I thought. Yeah, the um, fight and the attack and the... Yeah, and I like Andy Serkis's, you know, his hand with the vibranium gun, you know, mm-hmm. it's yeah. cool. Um, but I didn't, you know... Uh, I didn't like the, um, just to go to negatives because there's a lot of positives. I didn't really like the animation once his arm got pulled off. The oh, I completely agree. Shirt. Yep. I, agree. I, it, it, they, they would have been better keeping it cuffed tight to the top of the top of the stump and just had, you know, done CG on the stump end or something and made it like, you know, like a connector or something, but yep. it just didn't really, it didn't move well. 
No, I totally agree. At one point, um, I actually looked at it and went, "What's going on with his arm?" Oh, I see. He's, yeah. Okay. Yeah. No. I, I yeah. Mean, I totally like it wasn't got even obvious attention. that he was missing the arm. Yeah. Yeah. Like it I was, Yeah. It was just something wrong, and I caught my attention, which is disastrous from a visual effects point of view. Yeah. I got to say that one didn't didn't like, and I don't know if um, Matt, you'd agree with this, but there was oh my god, some really weird stuff on that waterfall. In particular, maybe yeah. it was just me, but the tracking in the top left of frame on some of the looking up shots. It was like they just couldn't solve the the track and the lens curvature or something. So it was almost like the bottom was tracking and the top left wasn't kind of stuff. It was weird as for me. Anyone want to I say think that? my issue was my issue. Sorry, just to That's interrupt right. real quick, Matt. My issue with the waterfall was actually looking the other direction. All the comps when they were standing on the waterfall and the deep background was behind them. Mm. Every one of those comps looked totally weird to me. Yeah, I mean, I, I think for me that, that the most problematic sequence or sequences in terms of location was the waterfall. There's a couple of nice shots of like the broad canyon where there's all the waterfalls where they have, I thought one of the cool things, the the, the interesting sort of ship um, and vehicle design of the Wakandan um, yeah. ships. I yeah. really liked a lot of the aesthetic of those. And I thought those shots were really nice. But when we see the, um, the first sort of... Uh, challenge uh for uh becoming king of wakanda mm -hmm. um and all the people uh sort of looking back towards the the primary waterfall location all the people standing in these really almost impossible to reach locations on yep. um the cliff face and stuff there was something about the the layout and structure you could kind of see what it probably looked like as a um concept art piece um but then the total execution of really getting all these kind of I assume uh, green screened and uh, maybe some digi double people uh, lined up and placed in that environment, and then you know tracking within the space, constructing. Um, I assume uh, a digital cliff face, maybe some of it was miniature, um, in order to get uh, all those people standing in there. It it just looked it defied a certain kind of realism and a certain kind of believability that I think the rest of you know certainly the urban area and parts of Wakanda did have, although they did feel very futuristic, which was in keeping with the the concept of the the hidden city. But um, that cliffside at the beginning and then again at the end um, at the waterfall, I just thought it never really quite clicked for me um, as a location where people were standing on it. Well, you the comps felt flat. Like, I, like nobody felt rounded, you know what I mean? And, mm -hmm. and like... It felt like there, like there was no fall off on any, anyone. Now I know the background was very far away, so it's not like there would be some mid ground plane that would be less out of focus than the back. But it just felt a little like it was super saturated back there. And I know Wakanda has the the, the beautiful sunsets and the whole thing, but it just felt very like A over B for me. Well but I mean, I would say that it's not even that. It, it, things can be very saturated in terms of like a sunset, but in fact, as things go off into the distance, they shift to the blue and they reduce in chrominance. Like uh, I made this point years ago that where if you look at like a Renaissance painting, they reduce their color palette as they go into the distance. So you end up with like very, very small number of colors in the distance, uh, whereas up close can be more vibrant. Where this felt like we were holding vibrance right to, to infinity. So I would totally yeah. agree with you on that uh, on that point, point. Um, and I've 
I've got to say, the other thing was the lighting for me. It just felt often like studio lighting, which, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. you just yeah, it felt like they were inside. It, yeah, you need, you need light that has no fall off because it's obviously coming from so far away that the relative fall off is irrelevant and parallel light. Mm-hmm. And it needs to be just not molded with tons of bounce and fill and whatever. So you just shot them outside. Yep. <laughs> totally. Um, and you know what? Um, I did a story recently, and I don't think we've done a uh, VFX show on it, on um, uh, Maze Runner, the third one. And they have mm-hmm. this train yeah. sequence at the beginning, which uh, mm-hmm. was done by Weta. And they shot all that green screen outside. And, you know, they weren't moving. Looks but, great. But it looked great. It really felt right because they were shot outside and it was real sun. And it is more difficult than you think to get studio lighting over a large area to look like sunlight because you just can't get the light far enough away. And if you do, it's, you know, not not like mm-hmm. a 5K or a 10K. We're talking like a couple of 100K soft suns and you're still pushing it. So I, yeah, I really felt that was uh, not helping them. The other one, I think you mentioned, Matt, which was some of the digi doubles. It might've been you, Jason, uh, at the end fight sequence. Yeah, like I actually think there was there was a number of uh, times where, at least for me, it, I, it may have been some of the other characters as well. I'm sure it probably was, but I felt like there were a number of times where we saw the main Black Panther character, um, both on the train tracks in the fight, as well as um, on the sort of on the, the large plane where the huge battle takes place towards the end yeah. with the rhinos, um, and a few other times too where. I felt like the double for Black Panther, um, the Digi double, it had incorrect um, anatomical proportions. Like they are actually several shots where, at least to my eye, and it really jumped out at me, his arms appeared longer than his legs. Uh, and to me, that was just, I, it was crazy looking. It didn't look natural. And the way that his arms hung off his body and moved, uh, it did not look uh, either like the actor uh, uh, or like a, an actual human. I mean, and so there were aspects of that to me that were almost like comically um, distorted. Hmm. And there, and also the the sense of weight and gravity, and at times it was the weight for work. me. Yeah, yeah. It, was, it was almost like you didn't expect it to be a final. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. There's a great. Um, there's a great. Uh, thing that I saw, like it was like a tutorial that um, the guys that were doing on uh, Lost World were doing just on Nuke and they were showing like how they went from like the base level to the finals and like what they needed to do to tweak from a base comp, which was accurate in lighting, looked perfect technically to the shot that was in the film and it was just that all these little things that they did that just made it sit in. And I felt like that's where they were. It wasn't like it was a temp shot. It was just like somebody hadn't had that extra, you know, eye of a senior go in and say, okay, these are the extra things we're going to have to add to to have that really sit down into the shot rather than sit on it. Do you think and, it was um, in that regard, do you think, was it like a comp level of sitting in or was it well, more do, like actually, at yeah. a more fundamental no. level in terms of lighting? So I thought, it was a, I thought it was a comp and... Well, some of it was comp. Some of it was the motion and the weight, which I don't mm-hmm. think he could have got around. Um, he just, I think when you're breaking the laws of physics, and God, how many times have we discussed this? It's so hard to sell a shot. Yeah. Because it's just not doing what, you know, somebody would do or it would do. 
So yeah, there was definitely stuff like that. And one of the toughest ones in that same regard, both in terms of the physics as well as I think the execution, you know, again, like you could see the artwork, you could read it in the script and it sounds really exciting. But when um, both T'Challa and, um, uh, sorry, um, uh, Michael B. Jordan, when they're falling, yeah, yeah, when they're falling into the sort of uh, the mines, you know, underneath the city and they're fighting, they're fighting as they're falling. Like that sequence is so sort of challenging visually. I, I could see where it seems like an exciting thing to pursue, but the visual execution of it, I think, was just lacking. It never really felt real or believable um, that they would be f- sort of falling and fighting in that in that way. Yeah, I mean, when you're falling, I think the no matter how superhero you are, you're desperate to try and you know grab onto something or even orientate yourself or do anything, unless you're jumping out of an airplane and you've got to got time to sort of align yourself for a, you know, skydiving kind of thing. It's just you're, you're, un, you're out of control and you're desperately trying to work out in control in an environment that is oddly lit <laughs> with a yeah, whole lot of... Yeah, to say the of, least, uh, yeah. Weird kind of bluey tones coming from nowhere kind of things, which again, again, is so hard to sell realism when you have an unrealistic lighting uh, design. And that may just be, you know directorially, art direction-wise, what was wanted. But um, from a visual effects point of view uh, and just from a visual effects point of view alone, just wasn't working for me. Yeah. Um, now, by contrast, if I was to say a shot that I think totally worked and would have been a cracker of a comp challenge, it's when uh, he first arrives on the landing pad having uh, gotten, um, uh, you know, this gone back to the raiding party and they've come back for the ceremony. The, they, they've got a landing pad and he meets, is it his mother or his mother-in-law? I think in the comic books it's his mother-in-law, but it's his mother in the film, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, I thought it was his mother. Uh, she has this incredibly, looks like a 3D printed costume on. It's like white with a headpiece mm-hmm. and, a, and a shoulder mm-hmm. piece. And that's an ILM shot. Now that works in every level for me. A, that would have been a nightmare to comp and almost impossible, if not actually impossible, the roto. And then on top of that, the fall off to the background, the um, like everything about that comp was successful for me. They looked like they were there. They looked like they were coming in and out of shadow, um, even though it was still pretty lighting. Um, and you yeah. could see off into the distance. I could totally board it. It was heroic. And wasn't that one too when he, when they first land? Isn't that also too like it's a it's a pretty wide angle lens too. So there's some there's some bending um, and distortion around the outside edges and stuff. Like I, if memory serves, when they when he yeah, first arrives, yeah, there are a couple of there's a couple, quite a few shots played out after that where it isn't so wide. You remember when the mm-hmm. guards are sort of about to march off and do stuff, and he's talking to his mother right, and stuff, right, and right. they're joking around with his sister. Um, yeah, because if you look at shots of of um, of the headdress in that, it's like incredibly uh, Angela Bassett's like shoulder outfit thing mm-hmm. is just ridiculous. <laughs> it's just, I I mean, they should win a costume design award. It's so great, but in terms of compositing, it's layers of semi translucent backlit white stuff that you know. Do you remember the shot? Like it's just a yeah. I mean, so that stuff's all three D. Well, it, no, no, it's it's live action. My, my point is how hard it would be to key that stuff properly, 
and have that fine intricate background through. Yeah, yeah. You see the background through it. You yeah, totally. um, (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I think she looks magnificent. I think, I think that she looks great in every shot she's in. Actually, she's such a good uh, addition to the cast. But but her costume itself looks really good. But what a comp challenge for ILM. But anyway, the point about that shot is, I feel like that does solve all the problems that we're just discussing. It's a hard comp. Shoots off into the distance. It's glossy and superhero-y and perky like in that sort of it needs to be saturated it's in the city with but with you know like a lot of stuff that's way off in the distance there's nothing in the short medium term because i past the ship it's just off to the city mm-hmm. um and i yeah that's it. i think i think i think what sells it is it probably is atmosphere whereas now that i'm thinking about that shot versus the one in uh the the waterfall like there's no dust or dirt in the air. It feels well, like it feels it be very water clean. Mist? I mean, it would be a ton of just... well, certainly water mist. Yeah, yeah. would have totally. Played. Well, I mean, they they cut the they cut the waterfall, which yeah. I actually did like that sequence where they kind of they do the sonic wave and it pushes the, uh, yeah, the yeah. plungers up or whatever. That was plug. nice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, I saw that. I was like, that's um, yeah, like a there giant would plug. be after after turning a after turning off a waterfall that large, there would be mist in the air for probably a half hour. Yeah, you know. Yeah, so, so I, yeah, you're, I felt you're they correct. could have sold that. And, and put it this way: you would have had a justifiable reason for putting water mist that no one would have blinked at, even if somebody had argued, "Oh, well, the water will have settled down by." Well, then. by contrast, look at the waterfall sequence from Planet of the Apes. You know what I mean, yeah, I mean, and how much there's mist. In that? Yeah, I mean, there's mist and hair and all sorts of stuff in there, and it's all fake. You know what I mean? So it's like it clearly, it can be done. Yeah. Um, um, well, there but, there are shots like I was saying though, more more sort of wider vista shots where they're not standing uh, at the waterfall, but where they're flying sort of through the the waterfall oh, yeah. zone, no, and that stuff's really sure. gorgeous. I think of the ship, and and it does have that yeah. same quality you're talking about of all the kind of the secondary levels and layers of the really fine aerated mist um, within the canyon where all the stuff is coming down, and I thought that stuff worked really great. I also thought the CG fire for the burn it to the ground sequence when he wants no one else to be able to get the um, Black Panther mm-hmm. uh, pollen or juice or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. From the, like that looked really good. I mean, there were obviously some flame bars there, but most of that's digital. And that, again, had yeah. atmosphere and depth and just mm-hmm. a real sense of something happening. Yeah, when he's standing there and looking at it, you know, and it's burning, I actually, in in my head, I did not, question the shot yeah you know i mean like nothing nothing said to me that it wasn't real so on the sequence where they're on the landing you know when they land on the deck that we discussed a moment ago also where they're having the fight at the waterfall also the sequence at the end where they're fighting all of those sequences were shot <clears throat> at least in part with the oculus 4 axis gimbal um rig off by presumably technocrane uh, i think cinemoves provided for them with the alexa sitting inside this gimbal have you shot with that thing or have seen it? It seems like a heck of a piece of um, cool kit to be shooting with. I have not shot with it. If anyone would like me to, I would happily do that. Um, <laughs> uh, I, yeah, I mean, you know, uh, that is the, um, that's the one that goes, it, it's like the AR rig or the, or the Triton or whatever the airy one is now that they bought from, from a, uh, What's it called? O'Connor or whatever. Um, it's like the gimbal inside the Steadicam, and this yeah. is like gimbal inside the. It's like a inside the inside techno. It. 
Yeah, it looks yeah. like you've got a bowling ball being held by two prongs on either side. And yeah, you so you can just spin it. Move the arm around without kinking the yeah. kinking the head. Yeah. No, I mean those I would imagine to do the things you want to do, they probably have, you know, the at least a fifty foot super techno and they're just, you know, arming it wherever they gotta be. Um, I mean a lot I, of I shots were like that. It seemed like that was the go to setup for the DOP. Cause, I, I mean, mean I why wouldn't you? <laughs> I would make that my go-to if I was on that movie too. I mean, let's also call out Rachel Morrison, who's you know who shot this, who's shot all of Ryan Coogler's movies, yeah. and is also nominated for an Oscar alongside for Mudbound, alongside Deacons, and you know uh, all these you know very uh, high-rated traditional you know white men DPs, um, and and just to skip off topic for a second. Back to what you were saying about the diverse crew and whatever, you know, apparently Ryan Coogler like fought super hard for her because she has not made a hundred plus million dollar movie before. And and I would say for multiple reasons, he made the right choice to do that. And Marvel was very uh, wise to listen to him and, and let him have a, the DP who shot all his other movies for comfort and B, to lend another voice to the storytelling totally agree yeah um and and if and if she said hey i'd love a super 50 foot super techno this would be the movie to get it on you know what i mean yeah i've seen photos of her behind the scenes on various films and i've obviously not necessarily low budget stuff that wouldn't afford it but she seems to like an arm with a when in the past i've seen it with an arm with a um just a head on it like a you know fluid head but this is like next level right because you can just basically place the camera wherever you want and you're never dropping tripod legs, but you can be as stable as you like or as fast moving as you like. And, um, and let's face it, like a techno crane is just an awesome thing for moving stuff around. I don't know oh, yeah. behind the scenes on what they shot in uh, Korea. I mean, I'm betting they, they went with something like that off a follow vehicle. I don't think I've seen it. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure they had, they had, uh, pursuit vehicle of some kind i mean to jump to that section i actually really like that section because i think you know the pinnacle of car chases right now you know might be you know mission impossible rogue nation or you know one of those Mm -hmm. you know they do really good they do really good car chases i think in those movies yeah and uh and uh and in this one, I enjoyed the, I thought the car chase was good. I thought, you know, um, showing how the vibranium worked. Uh, of course, they're jumping car to car and blah, 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 as, you know, but they are uh, super, uh, slightly superhuman. Um, I liked that that um, she threw the vibranium spear yeah. in front of the car. That was right. And like ripped it, you know. <laughs> That was ripped cool. it apart because you're not expecting it, right? Yeah, and there's, so. and there's one shot of her in particular of the general character and her sort of red, uh, you know, largely red and gold uh, costume that she wears where the camera does, if I remember correctly, it, there's a crazy camera move and we actually see her red dress uh, or costume sort of wipe into screen and it's sort of uh, flowing and then we're, she's on the I think on the back or the top of the car. Yeah, she was on the top, and uh, it, it, it sort of the whole screen wipes from her red 
uh, fabric and it sort of flutters as we see the car sort of moving slightly oh, yeah. faster very, than the camera. Yeah. And I thought that was a great like action shot and it really showed um, that character in particular in a really uh, dynamic and really heroic kind of superhero-esque um, moment within uh, that chase scene, which I thought was, you know, you know, yeah, there's some issues here and there, I suppose, but like, I thought it was really fun as well as a sequence. Well, and the comedy was really good too, uh, punctuating what you're saying after she, the, after their car gets demolished uh, and, and uh, you know, uh, was it Lupita Nyong'o driving? Uh, yeah. She comes up in the seat. She just slides up in the seat <laughs> yeah, on the that street. Was so funny. Like, you know, uh, and it was great because it, oh. it was this of all oh, the ahead. Marvel films, like uh, that sequence and that you just described, but then also the uh, the sister, the sort of Q character. Yeah, there was there was less humor, although I guess there was some too with the guy. Um, was he was he called the Gorilla King or something? Oh like that? yeah, that guy was hilarious. Um, but there was less humor overall, I thought, in this movie. But when they did bring the humor in, it really felt like it was welcome, and it and I think it really worked. Uh, to great advantage. That was one of the things I really did think looked cool was when um, we think that, uh, right, we're led to believe that uh, T'Challa has perished uh, being thrown over the waterfall and losing the challenge to um, Killmonger. Um, when they uh, sort of go in exile and they arrive in the snowy area, um, I thought the throne sort of room that hangs out mm-hmm. over the snow cliff where there were like these like birchwood kind of branches or I'm not sure what they were hanging exactly. Down. Hanging down. I thought yeah. set design wise, I really like that yeah. um, environment. I mean, that's all and, blue screen and that looked great. Yeah, yeah, and that comp was great. That comp out the window, that that vista was was really nicely done. Well, when they first Sorry. arrived too, he's totally backlit by, um, you know, what's happening in the background. And I feel like, yeah, there's something about that background vista that they created too that like it's all sort of misty and um, sort of has almost like a moon moonlit kind of vibe going on and it looked really cool. I thought it worked well. And he had he had his his line uh his line was really funny about if you don't, you know, whatever I'll feed you to my children. Right. And he's like, no, I'm just kidding, we're vegetarians. Yeah. It was was great. (laughs) The um it was really funny. There was one visual effects thing I want to mention before we left the Korea thing. Um Mm. I can't remember the shot because it was a great action sequence, but there's a bit where Andy Circus's car kind of flips right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Anyway, there's a great bit of B-roll um, showing how they did that. And uh, so that the Andy Serkis and the, his, you know, henchman driver are sitting in a full real car. And um, I'll see if I can post this on FX Guide. And uh, so imagine this car, which is inside, it's like full gimbal. And then there's a set of, uh, there's a video screen to the left, like a giant video screen, which is projecting the correct lights of the city there's another one underneath the car and the reason is underneath the car is they then just with the actors in there just spin the car like end over end and so this rig that they've got established is basically like a uh, an incredibly cool thing at a uh, amusement park you sit in it and the whole car just spins end over end as many times as you press the button presumably um certainly Andy must have been strapped in really well so he didn't sort of hit his head too hard on the roof when he's upside down. But the actor really commits. I mean, he's like gets his leg up on the dashboard and, 
you can see all this in the B-roll if you step through it because they've stuck a GoPro on the front of the, on the, front of the bonnet to watch him uh, suffer, poor bugger. Now, but the thing that's really funny about it is like there's this piece of blue screen that works really well at the back for all of about 10 frames, right? And then obviously when <laughs> yeah. they're spinning in every other direction, um, I mean, maybe the hero camera that it perfectly lined up on, but certainly on this, uh, on this outtake that I looked up. Um, and the reason I was finding the outtake is that, yes, they had a uh, what looked like a Russian... Um, Russian arm off a follow car for the um, for shooting that stuff in the streets of uh, Korea. But man, I'm so glad I found this shot. <laughs> I'm spinning this car end over end on this uh, on this. Yeah, gimbal. that's when they that's when they they're being chased. He fires his arm cannon, and uh, they hit his car with something. And they when he looks back, they hit. Oh, it's they the hit the car and kind of launch the, off. Right? Is yeah. that the, yeah? Um, and it's obviously it's. But the other thing about it, apart from the blue screen, funny thing, is it's so obviously the case these days that, you know, this is like a mini gravity solution where you just put uh, as many screens as you can around the thing that you're shooting and then don't try and comp right. necessarily just have lots of lights and correct vision playing so that they light, those lights light the actors rather than artificial mm-hmm. lights. And, um, and of course you get reflections on the dash and on the deco of the paint and everything else. Um, and that idea of having these giant screens surrounding the action and, uh, you know, gives you all that correct lighting. And then, of course, you have to roto it to get it out of the out of the spot. Anyway, I didn't mean to distract you too much, but it just was hysterically funny, this shot. I no, I mean, that's... Uh, but that's like, if I was making a movie at that scale, I would want to do all the, as much practical stuff as possible because you know that you're going to have a, a boatload of CG anyway. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and I mean, they had a stuntman on top of a car flying around on a Lexus in the streets. Yeah. But they also had entire blue screen sets, right, in Korea where... Yeah, know, I'm sure. Uh, they jump out of their Land Rover and things are... Uh, lots of Korean extras running around. Um, it was Korea, wasn't it? South yeah, Korea, yeah. South, yeah. Yeah, South Korea. Um, the, uh, the sequence that you're talking about, um, and I interrupted you, whereby they go to meet the or is it the sixth tribe, um, which I think was... Yeah. The other thing that, that happens around that time is we see these extraordinary external um, statues. And in this case, I think it's a bear. In, uh, yeah, yeah. And there's a panther in another one. You know, it's like an external kind yeah. of entrance. His, I thought, I thought his was were, a gorilla holding oh, gorilla, up the... Right, yeah, sorry, you're right. Holding yeah. up the, the, the outcropping right. of the throne room. Yeah. I thought yeah, they those were, were really awesome. well done. They yeah, were, I did too. Just what you wanted, right? Like big and... Sort of suitably impressive, but um, they well, looked real. Each kind of like it gave each kind of tribe, like you know, a, an identity, but also like you know, like a, a sense of some kind of you know that they were powerful. Like each tribe had its yeah. own kind of you know focal point, kind of. Uh, but it had a primitive. It still had a primitive voice to it, you know, in the design language, the execution, um, which. Uh, I'm assuming they did to tie to just the general African sort of design sensibility in general, right? Because uh, sort of the hewn, rough-hewn nature of certain things, but at the same time, they didn't have vibranium. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. They were just mm-hmm. warriors. Yeah, 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 yeah. The uh, the female warriors wore tracking markers for a lot of the live action, so clearly parts of their costumes were augmented. I don't know by whom. Hmm. 
Um, but uh, there's a lot of that stuff that we never get a chance to give credit to because you just don't notice it because if it's done well, you just right. assume it's part of their costume. Yeah, I wouldn't have known that at well, all. Wouldn't you? Um, what did you guys think of the rhinos in the charging sequences? I much preferred, the, well, I liked the rhino when I first saw it with the apple um, sequence, I think it was in um, when we were identifying them out in the uh, area. But I'm not a fan of particular fan of the rhinos at the final battle in the third act. I mean, they were good, but they were not great. I don't know. What do you think, Matt? Yeah, I mean, it wasn't something... I mean, I, I felt like such a dope uh, through parts of this movie where, like, they're showing me things, you know, early on, like the big rhino early on. And, of course, this is something that comes back later in the story. But I so, I don't know, I had my, like, you know... 14-year-old movie brain on, I guess, with the 14-year-olds I saw the movie with. And so I wasn't I wasn't making those uh, connections. But yeah, I mean, you know, I think that big battle sequence at the end, like there's a couple neat things in it. It reminds me a lot of um, the first Guardians of the Galaxy fight sequence uh, that takes place at the end on the, the big sort of city planet, right, if I'm not mistaken, mm-hmm. um, in, in that it's in broad daylight, um, it's outside, um, and I think this one was slightly, not in total, but like overall slightly less successful. And and for me, the rhinos, um, again, like something of that size moving um, at the speed they were moving at, they'd certainly do smash up a, a good deal of, um, you know, detritus on the battlefield, but it never really felt um, uh, real so much as it felt like uh, like really broad fantasy. Um yeah, like if you were comparing a display. fight sequence with those rhinos to a similar sequence that might involve a dragon in Game of Thrones, I reckon the right. Game of Thrones version would be grittier, dirtier and more believable and yeah. the visual effects would be every bit as good. Like there was, yeah. it wasn't this was bad, it's just that the, if the TV yeah. bar is set that high, you should, you know, you're going to have to acknowledge it and rise to it. Well, and the dynamics of a rhino just as a creature are not as, um, you know, it's such a, it doesn't have the level of range of motion or the flexibility of a dragon either, right? So I think there are um, fewer opportunities maybe for like a realistic dynamism in terms of uh, the animation of the creature. Um, I think they, you know, there were a couple nice things, the integration at times when, um you know, they, they would be moving really quickly and slide across the, like, kind of the grass. And there was some good, like, um, effects animation of kicking up of dirt and things like that. But, yeah, the, it just didn't quite have that same um, believability, I guess, in total, you know. In um, Is there any other sequences that you really wanted to discuss? The um... Yeah, so the, the one sequence that I really liked that made me just totally dig on Ryan Coogler, I think as a director too, is just that opening sequence. It kind of has that real like James Bond kind of vibe going on. Um, the way he, uh, uh, the way um, T'Challa drops out of the ship and oh, drops, yeah. the, drops the tracking markers or, and I, sorry, not yep. the tracking markers, the uh, EMP things yep. that slow down the yep. vehicles. And then um, we just see those guys who are driving those trucks like, and, and they're kind of, trying to figure out, hey, what's wrong with the truck? What's going on? And um, then uh, he sort of attacks like a panther would attack, literally. Like you don't know where he is. You don't know where he's coming from. And all the sort of baddie dudes that were driving these trucks, they're really freaked out and they start shooting. And the whole scene is kind of lit by the muzzle flashes of the rifles. So it has this very kind of um, 
almost strobe like uh, kind of effect going on the and yep. the edit uh, cuts on those flashes and it's really chaotic and I totally dug that as a sequence and then when his um, uh, the general like his kind of uh, you know first in uh, command or whatever when she comes down and because he did exactly what sort of the joke was that like he hesitates or he, um, yeah, he you know he froze yeah and she comes in and kind of like you know saves the day and finishes off like the last like bad guy or two and then um there's all the the girls um uh who are sort of have been kidnapped in this kind of boko haram kind of uh situation i just thought as a sequence like directorially that was really exciting and i think there's you know certainly some visual effects in there but it's more of just like a cool action sequence that i found really satisfying yeah i think it was good i mean those sequences um, tend to be set pieces like often the one I've signed, but I think they worked really well. And I mean, you know, again, felt a bit like a a James Bond kind of totally. detour. Yeah. In a good way. Yeah. Um, <laughs> without the, without the well, maybe with even some of the appalling uh, puns that uh, and kind of wisecracks that happen uh, in those films. Hey, um... We should just uh, finish up by acknowledging a couple of other quick things. I think, uh, Jason, you, I'd be surprised if you didn't have comments about the soundtrack of this film. You know, I, I did. Uh, I was. I didn't. I didn't learn a lot about who was involved before I went, other than you know the the main the main people, and I didn't look at music until afterwards, and. I thought that I forgot who did the original score, but I know Kendrick Lamar did a, a lot of music for this. And I think that they did a really good job of, of walking the line between what could devolve into just like a, a, just a standard kind of rap based hip hop soundtrack. Um, and actually gave it depth and, um, well, it almost had like a Lion some, King kind of thing going on through parts well, yeah, of it Yeah, it had too. Lion Kings at a time, but then they also, they went from having, uh, like you're saying, like the sort of, um, I forget what they're called, the, Af- the wooden African drums. Uh, they used a lot of talking drum, mm-hmm. you know, uh, which I thought was cool. They It felt like they really, you know, used the ethnic instruments of the of Africa at the same time weaving in the urban elements um, of hip hop without it being uh, flat. Like it had a lot of depth when it needed to have depth and it had energy when it needed to have energy. And uh, I, um, I really enjoyed it actually. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm not a big fan of modern, of modern rap. So like I was, I was, I was, um, Although I do like Kendrick Lamar, I'm getting to like him more. But I think um, I was afraid that it was going to be like wall-to-wall kind of modern um, sort of nods. And um, not because I think that Ryan Coogler would would sort of bend in that direction, but, you know, you also have to um, – uh, see how a director, who, you know, although he did have Creed, which was a reasonably sized film, it certainly mm-hmm. wasn't a, a superhero sized budget. Um, and I'm always curious to see where directors can, um, can, you know, put their stamp on things. And I think 
in this case, because it was a um, a very special film, I think in a lot of ways that that he really made his mark, uh, which I think is which I think is good. I feel like the biggest aspect in terms of you know soundtrack wise, I think yeah, it was like it was cool, it was balanced, it was even, it had a nice cinematic score, but it also had some great sort of more you know popular. Um, tracks, uh, certainly in the end credits too. But, um, I think what you're saying about Ryan Coogler, I mean, the things that, at least for me, just, you know, overall as a movie, there's two things, you know, at least just that I walked away from that I just thought were so potent and so powerful. Um, I think the direct connection to Oakland, which is Ryan Coogler's hometown yeah, where, course, um, yeah. station was set, um, and sort of the whole history of, um, Oakland as kind of a, a flashpoint um, for a lot of the struggles, at least um, for African Americans in the uh, here in, in the U.S. And then that line that Killmonger delivers, which I thought was really the most political and one of the most powerful lines in the movie, where he says, "I think he says, what does he say? Uh, Bury me in the ocean with my ancestors who jumped from ships because they knew death was better than bondage." And I just thought, man, like uh, the void. That's yeah, so they chose rad. the void over <laughs> it's, the bondage they knew awaited them. Yeah, yeah. And I just thought, like, you know, it, it's so overtly political, but in the most like righteous and kind of punk rock uh, fashion. You know, for me, I just I love that kind of stuff. And well, that's I think the Malcolm X, yeah, yeah, and that's what kind of pushed the movie, I think, into a whole nother arena that really beyond like the things we're talking about that make it really special just as sort of a cultural phenomena that, um, you know, that the Marvel uh, took this on and put this film together in the way that they did under uh, Coogler's um, leadership. But I think, you know, that aspect of it too, like really putting that kind of political element into the story um, overtly, I thought was... uh, was a great choice. I mean, I really like that. It made it really resonate in a big way, I thought. Well, the only other thing I wanted to <laughs> cram in if I could, if we can just leave Black Panther for a second. We touched earlier on uh, the fact that uh, Rachel Morrison, who shot this, is Oscar nominated for being the first woman in, in ever in, uh, to be Oscar nominated for cinematography. Um, this film isn't obviously o- Oscar nominated for uh, visual effects or anything, but we do have... Uh, five films that are, and before we next talk, we believe one of those will go on to be uh, the winner of Best Visual Effects at uh, the Oscars. So I want to do a quick whip round with you guys. We have Blade Runner uh, 2049, sorry, (laughs) Guardians of the Galaxy (laughs) Volume 2, King Kong in Skull Island, of course, um, and then Star Wars, Last Jedi, and War for the Planet of the Apes. So... Obviously, five really good films. Um, there are some really interesting films that were in the shortlist and all that kind of stuff. But just focusing on these five, where do we think it's going to go? What do we think the results are going to be? Who's going to name? Whose name will be on that? Hopefully, correct envelope that's handed <laughs> and opened <laughs> on the night. I'm saying apes. Yeah, me too. I mean, I think you know, just hearing those five titles, like, I mean, you can't all of the effects in all those movies. I mean, this sounds so like cornball, but I really think it's true. Like, I mean, those are all great effects movies. Yeah. But I think the work in Apes in particular, even though it was so much earlier in the year, really than those other uh, films you mentioned, except for maybe Skull Island. But I think um, the work in Apes, you know, the culmination as the final film of that trilogy and the successful execution of, you know, a film that is, really almost a hundred percent, um, uh, 
you know, CG apes. <laughs> I mean, it's, I, I just recently watched it again. Um, my uh, son wanted to watch it again. So he and I watched it one day when we were both home sick. Um, but God, it's just, it's so solid. It's so good. And it would be great to see um, Weta. I know they've been getting a few awards here and there already for their work on that picture, but it'd be great to see them take home, uh, I think, an Oscar for what I think is really the best and most groundbreaking visual effects um, of this last year. So yeah, I mean, Blade Runner won the BAFTA. What do you think about that? I mean, you know, uh, <laughs> cool. I mean, it's it's really good too. Yeah. Like, there's tons of great effects in it. Yeah, you know, um, but at I mean, least that was just for the, my money. The, I think Apes is is the one to beat. So the two indicators that one would point to would be the VES Awards, which is very much voted on by industry. Mm-hmm. I'm sure all three of us vote in the VES, mm-hmm. and so in the VES, um, War One. And uh, and Joe Lachery is being honoured separately as well for incredible lifetime achievement <laughs> contribution um, over at the BAFTAs, which was a good indicator at least last year or the year before. Uh, Blade Runner won, um, and uh, you know, great work again. Um, you've got to separate the visual effects from the um, from the film in one sense, but then in the other sense, you've got to separate like who's voting. So the VES award for uh, war was from effectively the Craft Guild. Um, I'd say the BAFTAs were more from the general, um, you know, members of the British uh, Academy. So that's why people would say, ah, well, in the nominations, absolutely war is going to be there because the craft recognition from peers is tremendous. But once you move to the general population of the Academy, um, then Blade Runner looks like a better bet. And this is the argument, right? Uh, Blade Runner looks like a better bet because they're not likely to vote for lead CG characters. They'll vote for, you know, people well, or Star that they Wars, like. maybe, you know. Well, now Star Wars is, you- is not normally, I mean, Star Wars is, is like a sequel of a sequel of a sequel of an additional <laughs> sort of thread of another session of a ninth film and you know like it's like <laughs> yeah not normally i'm not saying again so if you want to ask if i want to comment on quality that's a whole different discussion the discussion i'm having right now is yeah. politics yeah and there's no doubt that being nominated reflects your peers opinion of the quality of the work from a group that's well able to judge that but when you get to the winner on the night that's no longer a peer vote that's a academy vote right why do you have to use logic all the time mike jesus taking all the fun out of it yeah <laughs> like can't we can't we use uh specul good old speculation okay so we'll say that the uh the predictinator <laughs> predicts war yes yeah um, good has mostly been right i'll tell you something else that somebody <laughs> i won't tell you who said this but somebody very senior in fact they're actually a nominee <laughs> said to me off the record that uh, that there'd be a good chance that if, say, um, uh, Shape of Water had got to the nominations, then it could have won in the same way that we've seen other small films like win the category. or something. Yeah, because yeah. there's like a, at the general population voting, there is such a different dynamic going on. They're not saying yeah. that it's a bad film, you understand. That's it's a just good point. That, that, you know, like it's almost like there's... Well, a, it's an emotional reaction 
as well as exactly, and also they kind of reward as, the as smaller well. It should film. be honestly, quite frankly, all of the all of the Oscars are generally based on like emotional and artistic appreciation for something. Okay, can I argue? Which then, is why, but can I argue then if that's the case? War should win because nothing had more emotional impact from visual effects mm-hmm. than the performances that they got exactly. from the apes. Like Bad Ape was a masterpiece. So yeah, I, I, that's I'm, why I'm, I'm saying I'm not arguing against war, but I'm just saying like, but the argument would be that something like Shape of Water would win because they're rewarding the small film, the film that was made in between, you know, television series as like they just borrowed the Agreed. soundstage, and that tends to Up get to rewarded. that point. To that point, to the small film VFX, I just rewatched uh, Monster Calls with my with uh, mm-hmm. Lucas, with my mm-hmm. kid, and that movie is a masterpiece. Yeah. Okay, but there's the, no. You know I mean, As there's no small film masterpiece in this set of five. Agreed. They're no, I know. No, I know. I agree. So, I'm. I'm saying. I just saw Shape of Water in the theater two days ago for the first time, and I agree that movie is also. Um, you know, I other than some clear CG at the end. Uh, you know, any CG they did do is very well hidden. Well, they did a ton of it, right? I mean, all yeah. the faces right. well, of the guy yeah, yeah. is, is yeah. CG. They just, it looks like it's a mask because of the promotion of yeah. the film, but yeah. I mean, take nothing away yes. from Legend, who did a great job, but in the end, what yeah. you're looking at is a CG face on the creature. The Oscars right. are so fun, but I, I, it's so hard. Like as like, I, I, it's hard not to be cynical about like when we start talking about like the the machinations and ins and outs of like you know an emotional versus a political versus like the whole population versus the branch. Like you know, it it really does become almost almost a crapshoot. Really, like in terms of what winds up winning uh, in the tail end, not in terms of what's nominated, because certainly the branch chooses what's nominated, but, you know, it's it's really uh, kind of a, a wild card in the end. It's so difficult to, um, you know, assess uh, the minds of, you know, uh, the Academy voter. And I think it's great that they've made such an effort in the better part of the last few years as an institution to really try to get a much more diverse and, and even younger um membership, um, there's been a big push to that, which I think is really healthy um, for the body um, in general. But um, yeah, I mean, it's, you know, there's an aspect of it, it's like, well, it's just fun, you know, it'll be cool to see like some people that we know uh, in attendance, you know, at the event. And that, that's always really cool. And, you know, they always put on a an entertaining, if not, um, you know, curious show. <laughs> so, you know, I think uh, in the end, it would be great to see the one that we all kind of identify as, um, you know, some of the best visual effects win, but, you know, who knows? <laughs> so one of our irregular co-hosts, Matt Leonard, who uh, is a good friend of VF, uh, of both this show, the VFX show, but also FX Guide, mm-hmm. um, did a tally up for us since 1980, ILM's won 15 times. Now, of course, you don't win as a studio, so you can argue, you know, there's a mix there of like, but roughly speaking, ILM's won 15 times, dominating throughout the 80s and the 90s. In fact, throughout the 80s and the 90s, they pretty much won every year with Raiders, E.T., Indiana, you know, Roger Rabbit, like Total Recall, Terminator 2, Jurassic Park. I mean, it was just a, an ILM. Now, that set up, of course, a lot of Academy members that were ILM. But again, we're not talking about the nominations. We're talking about now the general Obviously, Weta had a really good run at the beginning of the noughties with uh, Lord, Lord of the Rings, of the Rings and then yeah. King, Kong. King Kong and then uh, Avatar. Avatar. And, of course, that was a really good period for Weta 
and WED has continued to do obviously outstanding work, not least of which like with Jungle Book, with uh, MPC, but it has been the English houses in the last, in this decade yeah. that we're in now, the uh, Life D-neg. of Pi, DNEG, Double Negative in particular with what, Inception, Interstellar, Ex Machina. Um, I think too, course, like MPC. the historically, like looking at, at Matt Leonard's list, which is so cool. I mean, so awesome. He put all this together. It's really fun to look at, but you got to remember too, historically, um, you know, Industrial Light and Magic, you know, for, uh, you know, those 15 awards, certainly at the beginning where it's just ILM, ILM, ILM for year after year, you know, there really wasn't um, a massive uh, amount of, or really any larger studios that were doing work. No, um, it wasn't larger, but there were some good places like Boss Studios and and others that were, you know, there were companies there. But I I just remember the time... uh, I mean, just anecdotally, I just remember being at ILM, you know, from about 92 to 99. And it really was only, um, you know, sort of halfway through my tenure there when, um, you know, people started really talking, although it had been around for a while, but people were really starting to talk about digital domain as a big force and Sony, you know, Um, it wasn't, uh, for a long time, it, it felt like it was kind of, in terms of digital visual effects, it felt like it was one of the only games in town for a while. So, I mean, yeah. just looking at the list, I just mean to suggest that not to diminish any of the award uh, awards that are won, but um, we have such a greater um, sort of panoply of companies now sort of all over the place that are doing really, really high quality work. And I don't think that that was necessarily always the case wonder, sort of in those earlier days. I wonder of those ILM films, how many you could put down to Amblin Entertainment because that was the other thing. Yeah. Like, I mean, where Lord of the Rings thing is obviously a completely reasonably uh, connected to their, you know, uh, situation with the director of that film. And um, and similarly, not that ILM had the same kind of directorial relationship with Spielberg, it did obviously with Lucas, but, you know, like a lot of those films seem to be connected in some way to Amblin Entertainment, don't they? From yeah. E.T. to Raiders to... You know, well, Roger Raiders Rose. was a Lucasfilm property. Right, but wasn't Spielberg directing, or am I just completely? He directed it, but I'm just saying it wasn't oh, okay. like ET right. was an Amblin property. Oh, I see what you're saying. But yeah. Yep, yeah. But in could, terms of ownership, yeah. But yes, you're. But yeah, obviously that is a a very good match, you know, of Spielberg and Lucas. And also that period, which of course we all rejoice in, um, you know, Stranger Things type reminiscing about the good old days. I mean, it was a great <laughs> period, right? Like those were awesome yeah. films. And, oh yeah. And uh, don't I know it? But yeah, okay. So now we're into this decade of the British companies playing heavily, like Framestore with Gravity or whatever. Um, and you could also argue that Gravity wasn't a big budget film; that was a very heavy effects film. Um, so anyway, we don't have one of those up for grabs. So will the Academy reward War for just immense performance on screen from digital characters, or will they go the other way and say uh, we want you know? good-looking environments, amazing stuff. And I mean, there's some good, uh, great work actually in terms of Rachel and um, and Joy in Blade Runner. But I, I think those would be the two. I would be surprised if Kong beat out War and Blade. I could see Star Wars doing it, but I don't think I'm going to see... I don't think they reward comedy. Two monkey movies too. Is yeah, the first time there's two monkey movies in the VFX? Uh, you think it's going to split the category. monkey vote? 
<laughs> Split them. I don't know. I got to say, I do, I do love the effects work. Um, and it's so sort of bombastic and ridiculous, but I do love the effects work in Skull Island. I think it's, yeah. it's really, really some amazing, amazing work in like one of the goofiest, like funnest, you know, sort of monster movies. Uh, well, I agree, but wouldn't you say like, um, uh, I was gonna say Groot, uh, no, it is Groot, right? I was going to say Grout, but it's Groot. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, brain Groot, yeah. Grout. Yeah. Okay, in Guardians <laughs> was just a spectacular um, piece of animation and work. But that, I don't think they're going to reward the comedy of it. Yeah, I, mean? like, I don't yeah. think that that's going to... It doesn't have gravitas. It doesn't it's, have, it's what's kind of interesting. Have a, that they is, don't have a backlit King Kong who's standing in front of the sun. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's what's kind they of interesting cool about that sequence. little about this list though is that like really all these films and the effects work and all these films like it's pretty it's a pretty broad range of um different uh styles different techniques too you know like there's not a um a clearly consistent thread you know you've got the dystopia uh you've got the 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 apes <laughs> the giant uh monsters right. uh you know and then the sort of space uh, comedy and then the space fantasy, and so it's you know they're they're very um, uh, yeah a, div- a, divi- a diverse group of um, stylistically of uh, effects work for sure. Just before we leave this, do you think the Academy now is playing novelty as strongly as they once did? It used to be, if you're looking back at that list, that like when Forrest Gump came out, there was a how did they do thatness about it, right? Titanic, there was an awesome, mm. I can't believe they did all of this about it. So what dreams may come? All of these like were really jaw-dropping in there. Yeah. I can't believe how they pulled it off. The Obviously Jurassic Park was a mega example of that. Um, so do you think we've now passed that and there's no factoring in of kind of how novel a, a thing it is? I don't know. I mean, I look at, well, does it, look at Jungle Book though. I mean, I feel like at least... Oh, okay. I think when people talk about Jungle Book, you know, last year's big winner, like, you know, that was, again, like another big groundbreaking kind of picture. Same with Avatar. Maybe you could maybe say that too about Life of Pi, I think. Um, so I do think there are moments where like there is a threshold and a barrier that feels like it's it's been crossed. And I do think we do see, not every year, but uh, in some of these years, those films are being rewarded for really kind of pushing the envelope in a, in a pretty exciting way and creating something that feels, um, at least for, from a storyteller's perspective, something that's really fresh, like giving a fresh opportunity to tell and create uh, a kind of story and narrative that maybe wasn't possible, you know, 10 years before or five years before. I would say to add a phraseology to the previous ones you just used, Mike, of the, I can't believe they did that or how did they do that? To I didn't know they did that. Right. That's what I think, like apes, right? Like you can look at all the other movies and say, well, clearly there's visual effects involved. And in apes, other than the fact that the apes are talking, you could say that they that you wouldn't expect the amount of visual effects in the film to be the amount of visual effects in the film. And so I think that's why you're saying like the smaller movies like an ex machina or a or a shape of water, like people are visually sophisticated enough now to know that, okay, yeah, there's CG. I mean, my kid, granted, I, he comes from a, a family or, or, a, a you know, an environment where he's taught to look at certain things a specific way, he's got deep, but even deep he'll cred. look at things and say, 
he'll say, you know, something looks, you know, fake or not fake. Like there's enough of a inherent visual language at this point that people have that they expect Star Wars to be fantastical and, you know, what's the new monsters going to look like that you know it's CG. And I think that apes, like I just said, I think the fact that you don't know how much is CG is the value in the wow factor. If apes win or war wins, do you want to guess how many Oscars Joe has, Joe Leterry has at uh, Weta now? 24. <laughs> I just made up that number. That would make it five wins. And I believe out of seven uh, or I eight. I went way over. I think he has seven or eight nominations on top. Like it's, it's just, I mean, you know, we're, we're moving into I can't believe it territory for contribution to the film industry. Just yeah. beyond, you know, I mean, most people would be happy with just his nomination list, um, you know, but uh, that's before you even get to his win list, which is just remarkable. Not that he's obviously in it for that, but, you know, like, uh, wow. It's nice to be recognized. Yeah. <laughs> I would, I mean, I, you know, as again, I personally think that if you want visual effects to serve the story, and that's what we always say they should be doing, then no visual effects serve the story better than they did in war. And it is it is a masterpiece. It's just so well done. It's just jaw-dropping. I don't say that the others aren't awesome. It's just out-awesomed by war. So totally that's agree. what I'm going to get Well, yeah, to. I mean, when, you're, when, you have, when you have a pile of awesome, one thing being better doesn't make the other things worse. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Good. Well said. Okay, guys. Well, that's it for this week. Thank you so much for being on the show, guys. Thanks for the talk. Hopefully, uh, we'll uh, loop back. We were trying to do our shows of the last few weeks, actually, and uh, I certainly dipped out for. for I got uh, a bit sick and couldn't pull out, um, pull it together. But I apologize about that. But uh, we'll see you again. I won't promise which the next film is going to be in case I muck it up again. Um, but <laughs> thanks so much for listening, guys. Thank you for being on the show. Where can people uh, sort of follow or contact you, Matt? Oh, you can always find me on Twitter at Matt Wallen or at my website, mattwallen.com. Jason. Uh, same uh, on Facebook or the Diamond Bros.com. And uh, of course, I'm on FX Guide. I'm on uh, Twitter as Mike Seymour. The thing that, and I'm on Facebook, but the thing I also want to flag is we have a new, some new courses over at FX PhD if you guys want to check it out. And as part of that, we've got something on um, doing stuff in uh, Unreal. And to discuss Unreal, we put together a piece on uh, the bit that I did at SIDGRAPH with the Meet Mike. So there's an interesting story there on talking to some of the team behind the scenes on the Meet Mike, if you want to have a look at that. Uh, that's over on the FX PhD blog. Uh, I want to thank everyone, including John Montgomery at the end, uh, <laughs> the sort of uh, headquarters end of running the whole show. I don't thank John in ages for the uh, enormous contribution that he makes constantly for uh, FX Guide. So I apologize about that, John. It's uh, so easy when someone's been uh, so integral to everything to not publicly say thank you. Uh, but also to Ryan and to uh, Matt for putting the show together and for uh, the other Matt for sending in his list on the on the best uh, winners for the VFX Awards for the last uh, few decades. And I want to thank you guys so much for listening to the show. We really appreciate it. If you've got comments, please uh, email them, send them, post them. We really like to hear from you, especially if there are shows that you'd like us to do uh, post the Oscars when we started getting into maybe some more TV shows and some other things. Anyway, thanks so much for this week. And uh, again, just 
total congratulations to all the teams at all the conversion houses that worked on Black Panther. It's just a ridiculously good film, and uh, we hope you guys uh, continue with such fine work. Thanks so much, guys. See you. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at vfx at fxguide.com. Copyright FX Guide, LLC.